Hatchet, Chapter 4. The memory was like a knife cutting into him, slicing deep into him with hate, the secret. He had been riding his 10-speed bike with a friend named Terry. They had been taking a run on a bike trail and decided to come back a different way, a way that took them past the Amber Mall. Brian remembered everything in incredible detail, remembered the time on the blank bank clock at the mall flashing 331, then the temperature, 82, and the date. All the numbers were part of the memory. All of his life was part of the memory. Terry had just turned to smile at him about something, and Brian looked over Terry's head and saw her, his mother. She was sitting in a station wagon, a strange wagon. He saw her, and she did not see him. Brian was going to wave or call out, but something stopped him. There was a man in the car, short blonde hair the man had, wearing some kind of white pullover tennis shirt. Brian saw this and more, saw the secret and saw more, but the memory came in pieces, came in scenes like this, Terry smiling, Brian looking over his head to see the station wagon and his mother sitting with the man, the time and temperature, clock, the front wheel of his bike, the short blonde hair of the man, the white shirt of the man, the hot hate slices of the memory were exact, the secret. Brian opened his eyes and screamed. For seconds, he did not know where he was, only that the crash was still happening and he was going to die, and he screamed until his breath was gone. Then silence filled with sobs as he pulled in air, half crying. How could it be so quiet? Moments ago, there was nothing but noise, crashing and tearing, screaming, now quiet. Some birds were singing. How could birds be singing? His legs felt wet, and he raised up on his hands and looked back down at them. They were in the lake. Strange. They went down into the water. He tried to move, but pain hammered into him and made his breath shorten into, into gasps, and he stopped, his legs still in the water. Pain. Memory. He turned again, and sun came across the water. Late sun cut into his eyes and made him turn away. It was over then, the crash. He was alive. The crash is over, and I am alive. Then his eyes closed, and he lowered his head for minutes that seemed longer. When he opened them again, it was evening, and some of the sharp pain had abated. There were many dull aches, and the crash came back to him fully. Into the trees and out onto the lake. The plane had crashed and sunk in the lake, and somehow he had pulled free. He raised himself and crawled out of the water, grunting with the pain of movement. His legs were on fire, and his forehead felt as if somebody had been pounding on it with a hammer, but he could move. He pulled his legs out of the lake and crawled on his hands and knees until he was away from the wet, soft shore and near a small stand of brush of some kind. Then he went down only this time to rest, to save something of himself. He lay on his side and put his arm on his head, his head on his arm, and closed his eyes, because that was all he could do now, all he could think of being able to do. He closed his eyes and slept, dreamless, deep, and down. There was almost no light when he opened his eyes again. The darkness of night was thick, and for a moment he began to panic again. To see, he thought, to see is everything, and he could not see. But he turned his head without moving his body and saw that across the lake the sky was light gray and that the sun was starting to come up and he remembered that it had been evening when he went to sleep. Must be morning now, 
he mumbled it in almost a hoarse whisper. As the thickness of sleep left him, the world came back. He was still in pain, all over pain. His legs were cramped and drawn up tight and aching, and his back hurt when he tried to move. Worse was a keen throbbing in his head that pulsed with every beat of his heart. It seemed that the whole crash had happened to his head. He rolled onto his back and felt his sides and his legs moving things slowly. He rubbed his arms. Nothing seemed to be shattered or even sprained all that badly. When he was nine, he had plowed his small bike, dirt bike into a parked car and broken his ankle. He had to wear a cast for eight weeks, and there was nothing now like that. Nothing broken, just battered around a bit. His forehead felt massively swollen to the touch, almost like a mound out over his eyes. And it was so tender that when his fingers grazed it, he nearly cried. But there was nothing he could do about it. And like the rest of him, it seemed to be bruised more than broken. I am alive, he thought. I'm alive. It could have been different. There could have been death. I could have been done. Like the pilot, he suddenly thought. The pilot in the plane, down into the water, down into the blue water, strapped in the seat. He sat up or tried to. The first time he fell back. But on the second attempt, grunting with the effort, he managed to come to a sitting position and scrunch sideways until his back was against a small tree where he sat facing the lake, watching the sky get lighter and lighter with the coming dawn. His clothes were wet and clammy, and there was a faint chill. He pulled the torn remnants of his windbreaker, pieces really, around his shoulders and tried to hold what heat his body could find. He could not think, could not make thought patterns work right. Things seemed to go back and forth between reality and imagination, except that it was all reality. One second he seemed only to have imagined that there was a plane crash and that he had fought out of the sinking plane and swum to the shore, that it had all happened to some other person or in a movie playing in his mind. Then he would feel his clothes wet and cold and his forehead would slash a pain through his thoughts and he would know that it was real, that it had really happened. But all in a haze, all in a haze world. So he sat and stared at the lake, felt the pain come and go in waves and watched the sun come over the end of the lake. It took an hour, perhaps two. He could not measure time yet and didn't care for the sun to get halfway up. With it came some warmth, small bits of it at first, and then with the heat came clouds of insects, thick swarming hordes of mosquito, mosquitoes that flocked to his body, made a living coat on his exposed skin, clogged his nostrils when he inhaled, and poured into his mouth when he opened it to take a breath. It was not possibly believable. Not this. He had come through the crash, but the insects were not possible. He coughed them up, spat them out, sneezed them out, closed his eyes, and kept brushing his face, slapping and crushing them by the dozens, by the hundreds. But as soon as he cleared a place, as soon as he killed them, more came. Thick, whining, buzzing masses of them. Mosquitoes and some small black flies he had never seen before. All biting, chewing, taking from him. In moments, his eyes were swollen shut and his face puffy and round to match his battered forehead. He pulled the torn pieces of his windbreaker over his head and tried to shelter in it, but the jacket was full of rips and it didn't work. In desperation, he pulled his t-shirt up to cover his face, but that exposed the skin of his lower back and the mosquitoes and flies attacked the new soft flesh of his back so viciously that he pulled the shirt down. In the end, he sat with the windbreaker pulled up, brushed with his hands and took it and almost crying in frustration and agony. There was nothing left to do. And when the sun was fully up and heating him directly, bringing steam off of his wet clothes and bathing him with warmth, the mosquitoes and flies disappeared. 
almost that suddenly. One minute he was sitting in the middle of a swarm. The next, they were gone and the sun was on him. Vampires, he thought. Apparently, they didn't like the deep of night, perhaps because it was too cool and they couldn't take the direct sunlight. But in that gray time in the morning when it began to get warm and before the sun was full up and hot, he couldn't believe them. Never in all the reading, in the movies he had watched, on television about the outdoors, never once had they mentioned the mosquitoes or the flies. All they ever showed on the natural shows was the beautiful scenery or animals jumping around having a good time. Nobody ever mentioned mosquitoes and flies. <sighs> he pulled himself up to stand against the tree and stretched, bringing new aches and pains. His back muscles must have been hurt as well. They almost seemed to tear when he stretched. And while the pain in his forehead seemed to be abating somewhat, just trying to stand made him weak enough to nearly collapse. The back of his hands were puffy, and his eyes were almost swollen shut from the mosquitoes, and he saw everything through a narrow squint. Not that there was much to see, he thought, scratching the bites. In front of him lay a lake, blue and deep. He had a sudden picture of the plane sunk in the lake, down and down in the blue water with the pilot's body still strapped in his seat, his hair waving. He shook his head. More pain. That wasn't something to think about. He looked at his surroundings again. The lake stretched out slightly below him. He was at the base of the L, looking up the long part with the short part out to his right. In the morning light and, and calm, the water was absolutely perfectly still. He could see the reflection of the trees at the other end of the lake. Upside down in the water, they almost seemed like another forest. As he watched a large bird, he thought it looked like a crow, but it seemed larger, flew from the top, real forest, and the reflection bird matched it, both flying out over the water. Everything was green, so green it went into him. The forest was largely made up of pines and spruce with stands of some low bush, brush smeared here and there, and thick grass and some other kind of very small brush all over. He couldn't identify most of it except the evergreens and some leaf, leafy trees he thought might be aspen. He had seen pictures of aspens in the mountains on television. The country around the lake was moderately hilly, but the hills were small, almost hummocks, and there were very few rocks except to his left. There lay a rocky ridge that stuck out overlooking the lake about 20 feet high. If the plane had come down a little to the left, it would have hit the rocks and never made it to the lake. He would have been smashed, destroyed. The word came. I would have been destroyed and torn and smashed, driven into the rocks and destroyed. Luck, he thought. I have luck. I had good luck there. But he knew that was wrong. If he had good luck, his parents wouldn't have divorced because of the secret, and he wouldn't have been flying with a pilot who had a heart attack, and he wouldn't be here where he had to have good luck to keep from being destroyed. If you keep walking back from good luck, he thought, you'll come to bad luck. He shook his head again, wincing. Another thing not to think about. The rocky ridge was rounded and seemed to be a bit of some kind of sandstone with bits of darker stone layered and stuck into it. Directly across the lake from it, at the inside corner of the owl, was a mound of sticks and mud rising up out of the water a good eight or ten feet. At first, Brian couldn't place it, but he knew that he somehow knew what it was. He had seen it in films. Then a small brown head popped to the surface of the water near the mound and began swimming off down the short leg of the owl, leaving a V of ripples behind, and he remembered where he had seen it. It was a beaver house called a beaver's lodge in a special he'd seen on a, the public channel. A fish jumped, not a large fish, but it made a big splash near the beaver as if by signal there were suddenly little splops all over the lake, 
sides of the lake along the shore as the fish began jumping. Hundreds of them jumping and slapping the water. Brian watched them for a time, still in the half days, still not thinking well. The scenery was very pretty, he thought, and there were new things to look at, but it was all a green and blue blur, and he was used to the gray and black of the city, the sounds of the city, traffic, people talking, sounds all the time, the hum and whine of the city. Here, at first, it was silent, or he thought it was silent, but when he started to listen, really listen, he heard thousands of things. Hisses and blurks, small sounds, birds singing, hum of insects, splashes from the fish jumping. There was a great noise here, but a noise he did not know, and the colors were new to him. The colors and the noise mixed in his mind to make a green-blue blur he could hear. Here is a hissing pulse sound, and he was still tired, so tired so awfully tired, and standing had taken a lot of energy somehow. It had drained him. He supposed he was still in some kind of shock from the crash, and there was still the pain, the dizziness, the strange feeling. He found another tree, a tall pine with no branches until the top, and sat with his back against it looking down on the lake, and with the sun warming him, and in a few moments he scrunched down, and he was asleep again. Chapter 5, Hatchet. His eyes snapped open, hammered open, and there were these things about himself that he knew instantly. He was unbelievably, viciously thirsty. His mouth was dry and tasted foul and sticky. His lips were cracked and felt as if they were bleeding, and if he did not drink some water soon, he felt that he would either wither up and die. Lots of water, all the water he could find. He knew the thirst and felt the burn on his face. It was mid-afternoon and the sun had come over him and cooked him while he slept and his face was on fire, would blister and peel, which did not help the thirst. It made it much worse. He stood, using the tree to pull himself up because there was still some pain and much stiffness and looked down at the lake. It was water, but he did not know if he could drink it. Nobody had ever told him if you could or could not drink lakes. There was also the thought of the pilot, down in the blue with the plane strapped in, the body. Awful, he thought, but the lake was blue and wet looking and his mouth and throat raged with thirst and he did not know where there might be another form of water he could drink. Besides, he had probably swallowed a ton of it while he was swimming out of the plane and getting to shore. In the movies, they always showed the hero finding a clear spring with pure sweet water to drink. But in the movies, they didn't have plane wrecks and swollen foreheads and aching bodies and thirst that tore at the hero until he couldn't blink. Brian took small steps down to the bank of the lake. Along the edge, there were thick grasses, and the water looked a little murky, and there were small things swimming in the water, small bugs. But there was a log extending out about 20 feet into the water of the lake. A beaver dropped from some time before, with old limbs sticking up almost like candles. He balanced on the log, holding himself up with the limbs, and teetered out past the weeds and murky water. When he was out there, the water was clear, and he could see no bugs swimming. He kneeled on the log to drink. A sip. He thought, still worrying about the lake water. I'll just take a sip. But when he brought a cupped hand to his mouth and felt the cold lake water trickling past his cracked lips and over his tongue, he could not stop. He had never, not even on long bike trips in the hot summer, been this thirsty. 
It was as if the water were more than water, as if the water had become all of life, and he could not stop. He stooped and put his mouth to the lake and drank and drank, pulling it deep and swallowing great gulps of it. He drank until his stomach was swollen, until he nearly fell off the log with it. Then he rose and staggered, tripped his way back to the bank, where he was immediately sick and threw up most of the water. But his thirst was gone, and the water seemed to reduce the pain in his head as well, although the sunburn still cooked his face. So, he almost jumped with the words spoken aloud. It seemed so out of place, the sound. He tried it again. So, so, so here I am. And there it is, he thought. For the first time since the crash, his mind started to work. His brain triggered and he began thinking, here I am. And where is that? Where am I? He pulled himself once more up the bank to the tall tree without branches and sat again with his back against the rough bark. It was hot now, but the sun was high and to his rear and he sat in the shade of the tree in relative comfort. There were things to sort out. Here I am and that is nowhere. With his mind opened and his thoughts happening all at it all tried to come in with rush, all of what had occurred, and he could not take it. The whole thing turned into a confused jumble that made no sense, so he fought it down and tried to take one thing at a time. He had been flying north to visit his father for a couple of months in the summer, and the pilot had a heart attack and had died, and the plane had crashed somewhere in the Canadian Northwoods, but he did not know how far they had flown or in what direction or where he was. Slow down, he thought. Slow down more. My name is Brian Robert Robeson, and I am 13 years old, and I am alone in the north woods of Canada. All right, he thought. That's simple enough. I was flying to visit my father, and the plane crashed and sank in a lake. There, keep it that way. Short thoughts. I do not know where I am, which doesn't mean much. More to the point, they do not know where I am. They, meaning anybody who might be wanting to look for me. The searchers. They would look for him, look for the plane. His father and mother would be frantic. They would tear the world apart to find him. Brian had seen searches on the news, seen movies about lost planes. When a plane went down, they mounted extensive searches, and almost always they found the plane within a day or two. Pilots all filed flight plans, a detailed plan for where and when they were going to fly, with all the courses explained. They would come. They would look for him. The searchers would get government planes and cover both sides of the flight plan filed by the pilot and search until they found him. Maybe even today. They might come today. This was the second day after the crash. No, Brian frowned. Was this the first day or the second day? They had gone down in the afternoon and he had spent the whole night out in the cold. So this was the first real day. But they could still come today. They would have to have started the search immediately when Brian's plane did not arrive. Yeah, they would probably come today. Probably come in here with amphibious planes, small bush planes with floats that could land right here on the lake and pick him up and take him home. Which home? The father home or the mother home? He stopped the thinking. It didn't matter. Either on to his dad or back to his mother. Either way, he would probably be home by late night or early morning. Home where he could sit down and eat a large, cheesy, juicy burger with tomatoes and double fries with ketchup and a thick chocolate shake. And there came the hunger. Brian rubbed his stomach. The hunger had been there, but something else, fear, pain, had held it down. Now, with the thought of the burger, the emptiness roared at him. He could not believe the hunger had never felt this it this way. The lake water had filled his stomach, but left it hungry, and now it demanded food, screamed for food. And there was, he thought, absolutely nothing to eat. 
Nothing. What did they do in the movies when they got stranded like this? Oh, yes, the hero usually found some kind of plant that he knew was good to eat, and that took care of it. Just ate the plant until he was full or used some kind of cute trap to catch an animal and cook it over a slick little fire, and pretty soon he had a full eight-course meal. The trouble, Brian thought, looking around, was that all he could see was grass and brush. There was nothing obvious to eat, and aside from about a million birds and the beaver, he hadn't seen animals to trap and cook. And even if he got some one somehow, he didn't have any matches, so he couldn't have a fire. Nothing. It kept coming back to that. He had nothing. Well, almost nothing. As a matter of fact, he thought, I don't know what I've got or haven't got. Maybe I should try and figure it out just to see how I stand. It'll give me something to do and keep me from thinking of food until they come to find me. Brian had once had an English teacher, a guy named Perpick, who was always talking about being positive, thinking positive, staying on top of things. That's how Perpick had put it. Stay positive and stay on top of things. Brian thought of him now, wondered how to stay positive and stay on top of this. All Perpick would say is that I have to get motivated. He was always telling kids to get motivated. Brian changed positions so he was sitting on his knees. He reached into his pockets and took out everything he had and laid it on the grass in front of him. It was pitiful enough. A quarter, three dimes, a nickel, and two pennies. A fingernail clipper, a billfold with a $20 bill. In case you get stranded at the airport in some small town and have to buy food, his mother had said, and some odd pieces of paper. And on his belt, somehow still there, the hatchet his mother had given him. He had forgotten it and now reached around and took it out and put it in the grass. There was a touch of rust already forming on the cutting edge of the blade, and he rubbed it off with his thumbs. That was it. He frowned. No, wait. If he was going to play the game, he might as well play it right. Perpick would tell him to quit messing around. Get motivated. Look at all of it, Rob Robeson. He had on a good pair of tennis shoes, now almost dry, and socks and jeans and underwear and a thin leather belt and a t-shirt with a windbreaker so torn it hung on him in tatters and a watch he had a digital watch still on his wrist but it was broken from the crash a little screen blank and he took it off and almost threw it away but stopped the hand motion and laid the watch on the grass with the rest of it there that was it no wait one other thing those were all the things he had but he also had himself Perpich used to drum that into them. You are your most valuable asset. Don't forget that. You are the best thing you have. Brian looked around again. I wish you were here, Perpich. I'm hungry and I'd trade everything I have for a hamburger. I'm hungry, he said it aloud. In normal tones at first, then louder and louder until he was yelling it. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. When he stopped, there was a sudden silence. Not just from him, but the clicks and blurps of the bird sounds of the, for of the forest as well. The noise of his voice had startled everything, and it was quiet. He looked around, listened with his mouth open, and realized that in all his life, he had never heard silence before. Complete silence. There had always been some sound, some kind of sound. It lasted only a few seconds, but it was so intense that it seemed to become a part of him. Nothing. There was no sound. Then the bird started again and some kind of buzzing insect and then a chattering and a cawing and soon there was the same background of sound, which left him still hungry. Of course, he thought putting the coins and the rust back into his pocket and the hatchet in his belt. Of course, if they come tonight or even if they take as long as tomorrow, the hunger is no big thing. People have gone for many days without food as long as they've got water. Even if they don't come until late tomorrow, 
I'll be all right. Lose a little weight, maybe, but the first hamburger and molten fries will bring it right back. A mental picture of hamburger. The way they showed it in the television commercials thundered into his thoughts. Rich colors, the meaty juice, and hot. He pushed the picture away. So even if they didn't find him until tomorrow, he thought he would be all right. He had plenty of water, although he wasn't sure if it was good and clean or not. He sat again by the tree, his back against it, and there was a thing bothering him. He wasn't quite sure what it was, but it kept chewing at the edge of his, thought, of his thoughts. Something about the plane and the pilot that would change things. Ah, there it was. The moment when the pilot had his heart attack, his right foot had jerked down on the rudder pedal and the plane slewed sideways. What did that mean? Why did that keep coming into his thinking the way that way, nudging and pushing? It means a voice in his thoughts said that they might not be coming for you tonight or even tomorrow. When the pilot pushed the rudder pedal, the plane had jerked to the side and assumed a new course. Brian could not remember how much it had pulled around, but it wouldn't have had to been much because after that, with the pilot dead, Brian had flown for hour after hour on the new course. Well, away from the flight plan the pilot had filed, many hours at maybe 160 miles an hour, even if it was only a little off course with that speed and time, Brian might now be sitting several hundred miles off to the side of the recorded flight plan, and they would probably search most heavily at first along the flight plan course. They might go out to the side a little, but he could easily be three, four hundred miles to the side. He could not know, could not think of how far he might have flown wrong because he didn't know the original course and he didn't know how much they had pulled sideways. Quite a bit. That's how he remembered it. Quite a jerk to the side. It pulled his head over sharply when the plane had swung around. They might not find him for two or three days. He felt his heartbeat increase as the fear started. The thought was there, but he fought it down for a time and pushed it away and then it exploded out. They might not find him for a long time. And the next thought was there as well. They might never find him. But that was panic, and he fought that down and tried to stay positive. They searched hard when a plane went down, and they used many men and planes, and they would go to the side. They would know he was off the flight path. He had talked to the man on the radio. They would somehow know. It would be all right. They would soon find him. Maybe not tomorrow, but soon. Soon, soon. They would find him soon. Gradually, like slashing oil, his thoughts settled back and the panic was gone. Say they didn't come for two days. No, say they didn't come for three days. Even push that to four days. He could live with that. He would have to live with that. He didn't want to think of them taking longer. But say four days? He had to do something. He couldn't just sit at the bottom of this tree and stare down at the lake for four days. At nights, he was in deep woods and didn't have any matches. Couldn't make a fire. There were large things in the wood. There were wolves, he thought, and bears, other things. In the dark, he would be in the open here, just sitting at the bottom of a tree. He looked around suddenly, felt the hair on the back of his neck go up. Things might be looking at him right now, waiting for him, waiting for dark so they could move in and take him. He fingered the hatchet at his belt. It was the only weapon he had, but it was something. He had to have some kind of shelter. No, make that more. He had to have some kind of shelter, and he had to have something to eat. He pulled himself to his feet and jerked the back of his shirt down before the mosquitoes could get at it. He had to do something to help himself. I have to get motivated, he thought. Remember, Perpich? Right now, I'm all I've got. I have to do something. Hatchet, Chapter 6. Two years before, he and Terry had been fooling around down near the park, where the city seemed to end for a time, and the trees grew thick and came down to the small river that went through the park. It was thick there and seemed all kinds of wild, and they had been joking and making things up, and they pretended that they were lost in the woods and talked in the afternoon about what they would do. 
Of course they figured they'd have all sorts of goodies, like a gun and a knife and fishing gear and matches so they could hunt and fish and have a fire. I wish you were here, Terry, he thought, with a gun and knife and some matches. In the park that time, they had decided the best shelter was a lean-to, and Brian set out now to make one up. Maybe cover it with grass or leaves or sticks, he thought, and he started to go down to the lake again, where there were some willows he could cut down for braces. But it struck him that he ought to find a good place for the lean-to, so he decided to look around first. He wanted to stay near the lake because he thought the plane, even deep in the water, might show up to somebody flying over, and he didn't want to diminish any chance he might have of being found. His eyes fell upon a stone ridge to his left, and he thought at first he should build his shelter against the stone. But before that, he decided to check out the far side of the ridge, and that was where he got lucky. Using the sun and the fact that it rose in the east and sat in the west, he decided that the far side of the northern side of the ridge was the best. At one time, in the far past, it had been scooped by something, probably a glacier, and this scooping had left kind of a sideways bowl back in under a ledge. It wasn't very deep, not a cave, but it was smooth and made a perfect roof, and he could almost stand in under the ledge. He had to hold his head slightly tipped forward at the front to keep it from hitting the top. Some of the rock that had been scooped out had also been pulverized by glacial action, turned into sand, and now made a small sand beach that went down to the edge of the water in front and to the right of the overhang. It was his first good luck. No, he thought, he had good luck in the landing, but this was good luck as well, luck he needed. All he had to do was wall off part of the bowl and leave an opening as a doorway, and he would have a perfect shelter, much stronger than a lean-to, and dry because of the overhang made a white watertight roof. He crawled back in under the ledge and sat. The sand was cool here in the shade, and the coolness felt wonderful to his face, which was already starting to blister, and get especially painful on his forehead with the blisters on top of the swelling. He was also still weak. Just the walk around the back of the ridge and the slight climb over the top had left his legs rubbery. It felt good to sit for a bit under the shade of the overhang in the cool sand. And now he thought, if I just had something to eat, anything. When he had rested a bit, he went back down to the lank and drank a couple swallows of water. He wasn't all that thirsty, but he thought the water might help take the edge off his hunger. It didn't. Somehow the cold lake water actually made it worse, sharpened it. He thought of dragging in wood to make a wall on part of the overhang and picked up one piece to pull up. But his arms were too weak, and he knew that it just wasn't the crash and injury to his body and head. It was also that he was weak from hunger. He would have to find something to eat. Before he did anything else, he would have to have something to eat. But what? Brian leaned against the rock and started out to, at the lake. What in all of this was there to eat? He was so used to just having food there, just always being there. When he was hungry, he went to the icebox or to the store or sat down at a meal his mother cooked. Oh, he thought, remembering a meal now. Oh, it was last Thanksgiving last year, the last Thanksgiving they had as a family before mother demanded the divorce and his father moved out in the following January. Brian already knew the secret, but he did not know it would cause them to break up and thought it might work out. The secret that his father still didn't know, but that he would try to tell him when he saw him. The meal had been turkey and they had cooked it in the backyard in the barbecue over charcoal with the lid down tight. 
His father had put hickory chips on the charcoal, and the smell of the cooking turkey and the hickory smoke had filled the yard. When his father took the lid off, smiling, the smell that had come out was unbelievable. And when they sat to eat the meat, was wet with juice and rich and had the taste of the smoke in it. He had to stop this. His mouth was full of saliva, and his stomach was twisting and growling. What was there to eat? What had he read or seen that told him about food in the wilderness? Hadn't there been something? A show? Yes, a show on television about Air Force pilots and some kind of course they took. A survival course. All right. He had the show coming into his thoughts now. The pilots had to live in the desert, and they put them in a desert down in Arizona or someplace, and they had to live for a week. They had to find food and water for a week. For water, they made a sheet of plastic in, into a dew-gathering device, for, and for food, they ate lizards. That was it. Of course, Brian had lots of water, and there weren't too many lizards in the Canadian woods that he knew. One of the pilots had used a watch crystal as a magnifying glass to focus the sun and start a fire, so they didn't have to eat the lizards raw. But Brian had a digital watch without a crystal, broken at that, so the show didn't help him much. Wait, there was one thing. One of the pilots, a woman, had found some kind of beans on a bush, and she had used them with her lizard meat to make a little stew in a tin can she found. Bean lizard stew. There weren't any beans here, but there must be berries. There had to be berry bushes around. That's what everybody always said. Well, he'd actually never heard anybody say it, but he felt it should be true. There must be berry bushes. He stood and moved out onto the sand and looked for the sun. It was still high. He didn't know what time it was. must be. At home, it would be one or two if the sun were that high. At home, one or two, his mother would be putting away the lunch dishes and getting ready for her exercise class. No, that would have been yesterday. Today, she would be going to see him. Today was Thursday, and she always went to see him on Thursdays. Wednesday was the exercise class, and Thursdays she went to see him. Hot little jets of hate worked into my thought, into his thoughts, pushed once, moved back. If his mother hadn't begun to see him and force the divorce, Brian wouldn't be here now. He shook his head, had to stop that kind of thinking. The sun was still high, and that meant that he had some time before darkness to find berries. He didn't want to be away from his. He almost thought of it as home, shelter, when it came to be dark. He didn't want to be anywhere in the woods when it came to be dark, and he didn't want to get lost, which was a real problem. All he knew in the world was that the lake in front of him and the hill at his back and the ridge, if he lost sight of them, there was a really good chance that he would get turned around and not find his way back. So he had to look for berry bushes, but keep the lake or the rock ridge in sight at all time. He looked up the lake shore to the north. For a good distance, perhaps 200 yards, it was fairly clear. There were tall pines, the kinds with no limbs, and tall very close to the top, with a gentle breeze sighing in them, but not too much low brush. 200 yards up, there seemed to be a belt of thick lower brush starting, about 10 or 12 feet high, that formed a wall he could not see through. It seemed to go on around the lake, thick and lushy green, but he could not be sure. If there were berries, they would be in that brush. He felt, and as long as he stayed close to the lake, so he could keep the water on his right and know it was there, he wouldn't get lost. When he was done, or found berries, he thought he would just turn around so the water was on his left and walk back until he came to the ridge and his shelter. Keep it simple. Simple. I am Brian Robeson. I have been in a plane crash. I am going to find some food. I am going to find some berries. 
He walked slowly, still a bit pained in his joints and weak from hunger, up along the side of the lake. The trees were full of birds singing ahead of him in the sun. Some he knew, some he didn't. He saw a robin and some kind of sparrows and a flock of reddish-orange birds with thick beaks. Twenty or thirty of them were sitting in one of the pines. They made such a noise and flew away ahead of him when he walked under the tree. He watched them fly, their color a bright slash in solid green, and in this way he found the berries. The birds landed in some taller willow type of undergrowth with wide leaves and started jumping and making noise. At first he was too far away to see what they were doing, but their color drew him and he moved toward them, keeping the lake in sight on his right, and when he got closer he saw they were eating the berries. He could not believe it was that easy. It was as if the birds had taken him right to the berries. The slender branches went up about 20 feet and were heavy, drooping with clusters of bright red berries. They were half as big as grapes, but hung in bunches, much like grapes. And when Brian saw them glistening red in the sunlight, he almost yelled. His pace quickened, and he was in them in moments, scattering the birds, grabbing branches, stripping them to fill his mouth with berries. He almost spit them out. It wasn't that they were bitter so much as they lacked any sweetness, had a tart flavor that left his mouth feeling dry, and they were like cherries in that they had large pits, which made them hard to chew. But there was such a hunger on him, such an emptiness that he could not stop, and kept stripping branches and eating berries by the handful, grabbing and jamming them into his mouth and swallowing them pits and all. He could not stop, and when at last his stomach was full, he was still hungry. Two days without food must have shrunken his stomach, but the drive of hunger was still there. Thinking of the birds and how they would come back to the berries when he left, he made a carrying pouch of his torn windbreaker and kept picking. Finally, when he judged he had close to four pounds in the jacket, he stopped and went back to his camp by the ridge. Now, he thought, now I have some food and I can do something about fixing this place up. He glanced at the sun and saw he had some time before dark. If only I'd matches, he thought, looking ruefully at the beach and lakeside. There was driftwood everywhere, not to mention dry and dead wood all over the hill, and dry dead branches hanging from every tree. All firewood and no matches. How did they used to do it, he thought. Rub two sticks together? He tucked the berries in the pouch back under the overhang in the cool shade and found a couple of sticks. After ten minutes of rubbing, he felt the sticks, and they were almost cool to the touch. Not that, he thought. They didn't do the fire that way. He threw the sticks down in disgust. So no fire, but he could still fix the shelter and make it here. Here the words safer came to mind, and he didn't know why. More livable. He started dragging sticks up from the lake and pulling long dead branches down from the hill, never getting out of sight of the water in the ridge. With these, he interlaced and wove a wall across the opening of the front of the rock. It took over two hours, and he had to stop several times because he still felt a bit weak, and once he felt a strange new twinge in his stomach, a tightening, rolling. Too many berries, he thought. I ate too many of them. But it was gone soon, and he kept working until the entire front of the overhang was covered, save for a small opening at the right end nearest the lake, the doorway. It was about three feet, and he went in and found himself in a room almost 15 feet long and 8 to 10 feet deep with a rock wall sloping down at the rear. Good, he said, nodding. Good. Outside, the sun was going down. Finally, and in the initial coolness, the mosquitoes came out again and clouded in on him. They were terrible thick, as if not quite as bad in the mo- as in the morning. 
and he kept brushing them off his arms until he couldn't stand it and then dumped the berries and put the torn windbreaker on. At least the sleeves covered his arms. Wrapped in the jacket with darkness coming down fast now, he crawled back in under the rock and huddled and tried to sleep. He was deeply tired and still aching some, but sleep was slow coming and did not finally settle in until the cool evening turned into night pool and the mosquitoes slowed. Then, at last, with his stomach churning on the berries, Brian went to sleep.